like to welcome you all to Ananda. My name is Ananta, this is Maria. We're very glad to be here. We have quite a few number of programs happening this weekend. We have the 11-step program, we have Women's Retreat. And we're deeply honored to have you with us to join in service. And it adds a lot to us to have you here with us. So thank you for coming, thank you for being here. I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light. Appropriately, the topic is to each according to his faith. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. In the Gospel of St. John, we read, Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. It is a common experience shared by most people that when a person errs, he experiences a desire to hide that error from his conscience instead of holding it up for purification. Error clutches its misdeeds to itself and resists correction, though it is only in the state of purity that we can achieve perfect freedom. It requires an act of will to offer that awareness up to the light and to hold it there until one's inner darkness is completely dissipated. For every state of consciousness has its own attractive power, and the more we allow that attraction to act upon us, the more we attract to ourselves the objective circumstances and experiences natural to it. Our faith is the attractive power of our underlying state of consciousness. Goodness attracts goodness. It takes goodness even to see goodness. Evil attracts evil, and it takes evil even to see evil, that is, to take special note of its existence. Whatever there is in you of darkness or light, offer it up to the heights. In the supreme light alone will we find salvation. Accept nothing less in yourself as your lasting reality. As the Bhagavad Gita says in the 12th chapter, cling thou to me, clasp me with heart and mind, so shalt thou dwell surely with me on high. But if thy thought droops from such height, if thou beast weak to set body and soul upon me constantly, despair not. Give me lower service, seek to reach me, worshiping with steadfast will. And if thou canst not worship steadfastly, work for me, toil in works pleasing to me. For he that laboreth right for love of me shall finally attain. But if in this thy faint heart fails, bring me thy failure. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Whispers from Eternity. 
this is in the section Prayers on Devotion. With folded hands, bowed head, and heart laden with the myrrh of reverence, I come to thee. Thou art my parents, I am thy child. Thou art the master, I am ready to obey the silent command of thy voice. I conjured the fragrant devotion of all hearts and mixed it with my tears. Now I am eager to wash thy feet in silence. A river of my ardent crystal tears of craving rushes forth to meet thee. Wilt thou see that my boisterous flood of devotion be not lost in the desert of disappointment? Wilt thou see that my mad flood of devotion follow always the right course which leads to thee? I'd like to also welcome all of you here today. Uh, it's my great uh, blessing to be able to address this reading, uh, especially from the Gita, because it's a, it's, uh, I think most of us would probably say it's, it's one of the most, if not the most touching passages of the Gita. Indeed, Yogananda said that it is passages such as this that make the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, so sweet, so sympathetic, and so useful in healing the manifold illnesses and suffering of humanity. So that's quite something. But uh, as we read this in the Gita, it says, Cling thou to me, clasp me with mind and heart. And then in the Bible, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy soul, and all thy strength. Very, very powerful readings and commands. God asking us to come with the totality of our love and the fullness of our hearts. And that, at times, can be a real tall order. As we were doing the fire ceremony this morning, I, gazing into that fire, I was reminded of the bristlecone pine. And I don't know if many of you have been in the environment or habitat where these beautiful trees live. Uh, I'm sure it varies in some of the different environments, but in this particular place in the White Mountains in Eastern California on the border, uh, many, many trees that are there that are thousands of years old. And some of them are seven, eight, nine thousand. They fall and they die, but their trunk, the whole tree kind of remains there in the environment is so austere the weathering process so slow that they are still there. But one of the very remarkable features of this tree and of these groves is that one seed, if one seed sprouts in a hundred years, that is enough to keep that forest, that woodland going. One seed, you know, these seeds cast billions, but just one has to make it. And it's, that came to my mind this morning, and I thought, that's the power of devotion. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the strength of devotion, and that's why Krishna and Gita is calling to us in this way, cling to me, and whatever we can grasp to make that offering, 
There's a beautiful story in the Srimad Bhagavatam, and this is one of the um, great uh, books that we have inherited from Mother India. And in this, this particular story is about a young Brahmin, and his name is Ajimila. And he's a young man. Um, he's devout in his practice. He's steadfast in his practice. He's um, dedicated. And for whatever reason, we don't always see the whole uh, picture. He one day looks out into the world in quite a different way, and he sees a very different picture. And that picture is compelling, and it's magnetic, and it captures him. He leaves his family, he leaves his wife, he leaves his parents, and he pursues what he perceives as a greater happiness in the world. And not just the world, I know many of us live in the world, we don't all live at Ananda Village, but I mean a consciousness of worldliness. And it attracts him, and it has a power, it's magnetic, and it draws him in. And the further he goes exploring this realm of consciousness, the more he becomes a part of it and becomes like it and takes it on. And he becomes a little lazy, he becomes a little indifferent to other people's realities. He seeks one thing after another, one pleasure after another. He finds a woman who perceives the world as he does, is seeking in the world as he wants to and as he enjoys, and they have many, many children. He is no longer responsible to a family. He steals, he takes from others, he's lazy. People begin to not like this fellow and try to keep their distance, don't want to really have anything to do with him. And their life goes on. They have many children together, and finally, <coughs> seven, eight, nine, or ten, the child is born. And this child they name Narayana. And Narayana is a name for the Lord. And somehow this child captivates the attention of this young man. And he always wants to be near this child. Narayana this, Narayana that. Narayana, come have breakfast with me. And he feeds his child first, Narayana, come play with me, let's go here, let's go there. And, but still, he's, he's uh, except for this child of his, he really doesn't have a lot of interest or any care at all for others, and so he goes on in a way that is very self-centered and ego-affirming. And his life goes on in this manner, and much time has gone by, and he's quite old, by this time. And one day, as he is standing out there in the yard, he sees from a distance two messengers of Yama, the Lord of Death, approaching. And he becomes desperate, and he calls out to his son, Narayana, Narayana, come, hurry, hurry. And in that moment, two messengers of the Lord also come. And these messengers of Yama, by this time, Ajamila has fallen, he's dying, it's his gasping breath, Narayana, come. And they're trying to, the messengers of Yama are trying to wrestle his soul out of the physical body and take it away. And Narayana, the messengers of Narayana intercede and say, stop, stop. What gives you 
the right to take this man, explain to me what Dharma means. And so this great discussion ensues between the messengers of Yama, the Lord of Death, and the Lord himself, uh, the messengers of the Lord Narayana. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And finally, the messengers of Narayana say, if you want to know, if you, want to, if you don't believe us that this man is ours, that he can remain now in this body, go to Yama himself and ask him what he thinks. And so off the messengers of Yama go, and they return to the Lord of Death, and they explain the situation. This has never happened to them before. Whoever they want to go get, they get. But uh, here they were, you know, interceded. So they ask Lord Yama, and he says, there is one even greater than I, and that is Narayana himself, and what he says is right. So go back and leave this man. And so Ajamila has heard this whole discussion take place, and he is completely in awe. He can't believe that the Lord has interceded on his behalf. And we might ask why. He only, it wasn't like he was calling out God's name with the intention of calling on God. He was just calling Narayana, his son, which happened to be the name of God. So he's, list, he's listened to this whole thing Ajamila has, and he's really quite taken, and he is deeply moved. The Lord has forgiven him his past, everything that has gone before his evil ways, all of it, and given him this opportunity. And so from that moment on, Ajamila decides to live life very differently. And as I said, by this time he was already an older man, but in his remaining years, he completely turned his life again to God, and he resumed his practices, and he resumed his devotions. And one day when he was at the Ganges and doing his practices, he saw approaching the messengers of Narayana, and he got up with full presence of mind, and he bowed before them. And in that moment as he bowed, Narayana lifted him, from that body, it fell on the banks of the river, and the two became the one. It's a very beautiful story, because like this passage from the Gita, it's Divine Mother is there for us, and whatever has gone before, whatever it is, it's if we turn, make that turn simply to the light from where we are, right here, right now, then the direction is forward, the direction is upward. Swamiji oftentimes uses the example of climbing a mountain to describe and to uh, illustrate to us that we are all at different stages on the path. We are all at different levels of wakefulness and um, uh, positions on the journey climbing that mountain. And he says, some of us, you know, we're walking along, maybe the ground is kind of level, maybe there's rolling hill, there's not a lot of obstacle or destruction, uh, obstruction, just using a walking stick is, is going to get us where we need to go at that time. Others who are further on their journey, perhaps higher, near the top of the mountain, might require an ice axe or crampons or whatever the technological gear is. 
But it is to say that we are all at a different place in the path. We all have a different reality. And that too is what the Gita is saying in this passage, to accept where we are at. And it's where we are at that becomes the offering, becomes what we give to God. That's why such a scope here is covered. It doesn't, Krishna doesn't care if it's, you know, a ball of mud. Krishna doesn't care if it's success or a talent or failure or whatever it is. That becomes the offering. And as we can accept that in ourselves, then we're able to give it. If we can accept it in ourselves, then it has worthiness. And we see the validity of where we are now. We see the blessing and the opportunities of where we are now, however difficult they might be, however challenging they might be. They're blessing, they're grace, because God is coming through that situation and leading us forward and leading us upward and revealing to us the worthiness of that moment, the worthiness of that difficulty, if we can come to him and lay it at his feet. There's a beautiful uh, chant that Kriyananda uh, has written, I want only thee, Lord. He wrote this many, many years ago, I think in the 80s or so. And I was so delighted at the time because I had been reading for years by this time in the uh, Raja Yoga course that when you pray to go deep, repeat the words, reveal thyself, Lord, I am thine, I want only thee. And I would focus on those. And, I, and they're so beautiful, so complete, so total, and then he made chants out of all of them. What a blessing. But it was very interesting when he first wrote that chant, and I remember very well he introduced to it to us. It's not a complicated chant. I want only thee. <laughs> That's all it is. But he said it can be scary to sing that chant. And he said, don't think that you can't sing it. Don't think that you can't say those words. I want only thee. When we do, when we get in our minds and we think about it, I want only thee. And then we try, you know, devotees, we're trying to be honest with ourselves and we're thinking, well, I don't always want God. I want this, I want that. I, I have a thought about this. I don't think that's right. I want, I desire that. And we think, I can't say these words. I can't be in this vibration. But Swamiji was explaining all this, and he said, it's important to do this chant. It's important to hold these words in our heart. It's important to meditate on them and hold them in our consciousness, not just as an affirmation. It is a powerful affirmation. But it's also, in all honesty, the words really of the soul. I want only thee. And our yearning for that, our desire for that on a soul level, on a soul level is predominant, is to the fore. And we're just trying to catch up with that all the time in our consciousness so that our actions do reflect that, our thoughts do reflect that. So very, very, very important words. And again, you know, when we're looking at this passage of the Gita, I mean, that's what it's saying. You know, how do you love God with everything? when we've got all this other stuff going on. But you just bring to the altar those words. You just bring to the altar that yearning. Even though the other things are there, that offering is what accelerates growth. That offering is what purifies. That offering is what increases our spiritual magnetism. <coughs> I had a very interesting dream recently, and I, I think... Uh, 
Well, God gives us things in many different ways to help us to understand teaching. And I, I thought about it a little bit at the time, but then in the context of this talk this morning, I thought, ah, you know, yet another insight into this passage from the Gita. And in this dream, I was seated next to a person, and they were sitting on the floor and, and sitting up, but kind of half awake, and half asleep. And, you know, just kind of with the head tilted and just sort of, you know, trying to decide is what it felt like, whether to wake up or go to sleep. And I was desperately trying to wake up this person. Um, not because I thought it was right, not because I thought it was the thing to do, but because I could see in them that they could wake up. And, you know, here it's a symbol, a spiritual symbol, clearly, but I could see that they could wake up and they could succeed and, they, and everything would be right and everything would be well. And so I was desperately, I mean, not shaking them, but I was just talking to them, desperately trying to get them to wake up. And, and then, it was real interesting to me, I could just see how, you know, as they were with eyes closed or trying to make this decision, I could see how, well... I can also see that they could just stay asleep for now, and that that would be okay. And not, not as something less, but it's more the compassion of it, and the compassion that comes across in this reading, that God is there for us. And if, if all you've got is failure, if all you've got is the thing done wrong, if all you've got is the fact that you checked out and slept, or... <laughs> You know, whatever it is, that if we turn toward the light and all of that will come together, then God is there for us. That divine response, that divine presence is there for us. And so to hold that compassion toward ourselves, but also towards others, to direct the energy in such a way as is constructive, because that, in, if it's constructive, it's going to lead us forward, it's going to lead us upward. And I think when we can feel compassion, we can give ourselves space, give others space to do that. So when Swamiji says things like, you know, if you feel anger, redirect that. Well, it's not always that easy to do that. But he says, if you can just even do another activity, you know, go out and split some firewood. I have a friend of mine who uh, loves to ski, and she says it's the only thing that kind of takes the totality of her consciousness, you know, in terms of doing something, acting in the world, and focalizes it because she has to try so hard just to be careful and to be safe. But when we're able to redirect an energy like that, the energy of emotion, for example, in some kind of activity, then we start to relax. And then, ah. Oh. <coughs> if we can relax, then the picture gets a little bigger. The picture gets a little clearer. And then we're able to perhaps feel why this, that we can feel this other person's reality. You know, from our point of view, we're angry, but this person has another reality. And from their point of view, maybe that's right, maybe that's true. So. Each time we relax a little more deeply, if we can, if we can embrace someone else's reality, oh, you know, we, again we expand. And then Swamiji says, try to mentally bless them. Try to mentally 
forgive them at that point if you can. So anytime, you know, an emotion, an energy, an action comes in there for which we don't feel, you know, we don't want to be a part of, we don't recognize as something worthy of discipleship, to just turn toward the light, be compassionate toward ourselves, be compassionate towards others, give ourselves the space. If it's a desire for a thing, a desire for an opportunity that someone else has that we think we deserve, you know, something like that, to try and find some way to be generous in our own heart, some way in our own heart to give. And just get that ball rolling. Generosity, giving, again, we expand. And when we expand, there comes that acceptance of the self, the acceptance of where we're at, the acceptance of what is. But even if it is, you know, to what is doesn't have to stay that way. And we open the door by centering the energy in the heart and again practicing devotion. And so when we're with others to try to see their positive qualities and encourage people in that. It says in another part of the Gita, even a little leaf offered with devotion is pleasing to me. And so as we believe in others, as we give them strength, as we honor the, the beauty in them on a soul level and outwardly too, you know, not just their talents, but most especially their soul nature, their leaf, their offering becomes something magnetic, becomes something that draws the, response, the divine response. It becomes like gold. It becomes like, I can't help saying, but I had the image this morning. It's like one of those tulips at the crystal hermitage, you know, just so radiant, so full of light, so reflecting of the divine presence, and it becomes like that. And that's what that reading is about. Krishna's just there with open arms, and we can do no wrong. I mean, there's nothing that we can do that separates us from that reality. It's just a question of turning in that direction yet again, and holding that consciousness of light, that vision of light there, and being willing to walk toward that.